invite you to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts. Right after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John comes Acts chapter 1. This is the third of a three-part series that began on Easter Sunday. I mentioned to you that that day I preached on the resurrection of Christ. And then the Sunday after that, looked at the great commission that he gave uh, after his resurrection. And today we will look at his final words to his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we have those here in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That ends the reading of God's holy word. The ascension of Christ. What would a certified public accountant, a football team, an astronaut, and a mountain climber all have in common? Well, if they were not prepared, they would fail. Um, If a mountain climber did not know how to repel, uh, he or she would fail. If an astronaut did not know how to function in a weightless environment, if a CPA did not know the tax code, if a football team did not know how to block against his own blitz, they would all fail. Preparation is what's important. You have to be well prepared to be successful. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, I know why you exist. I don't know God's will for you pertaining to the specifics of your life, but if you are a follower of Christ today, you exist to be a witness for him, to be an ambassador for Christ. Sometimes people have a near-death experience, maybe a near car wreck that could have been fatal, and they say, ooh, I became very keenly alert. I realize God has a purpose for me now. Well, he had a purpose for you before. Maybe you just weren't thinking about it. You weren't as conscious about it. So God has put us here as an ambassador's. Now, the question is not whether you, as a follower of Christ, are an ambassador. You are. The question is, how effective are you in that? And probably many of us feel, well, I'm not very effective. I don't think I'm a very strong witness for Christ. Or, I, uh, it doesn't appear that way anyway. Well, if you ever feel that way, maybe the issue is your preparation. Whether you have been truly prepared and trained as Christ would have it. 
And that's what we have here in these words, I think, is Christ training them, preparing them, and then commissioning these disciples to take the gospel out. Before we look at that part, though, let me say a few words about Luke, the author of the book of Acts. Uh, Luke was a native of Antioch. By profession, he was a physician. He had become a disciple of the Apostle Paul. He had become a follower of Christ through Paul's ministry, and he later followed Paul up until the time Paul was executed, up until he was martyred. Luke was very educated. Uh, He was highly cultured, and we know that from his use of the Greek language. Uh, We gain assurance from his method in the first four verses that I won't reread now, but he's saying to this figure Theophilus that he's a consummate historian, that he has gathered material, that he has gleaned information from eyewitnesses, from people who were there and saw these things. He says that he himself had invested, investigated everything from the beginning. And he had a purpose in investigating that and writing it down. And it's in verse 4 that you might know the certainty of it. Listen, if you're going to suffer and possibly die for something, you better know that it's true. And you better be certain of that truth. And Luke wanted them to be certain of it. Because we need the testimonies of people who were there. We didn't see Lazarus raised from the grave. We did not see Jesus walk on the water or feed the multitude. We rely on the eyewitnesses who were there and saw it. And so Luke employs very detailed methods to give an exact rendering of actual events. We also gain assurance from his message. Luke wrote two volumes, two scrolls. Volume 1 is the Gospel of Luke. That's what he's referring to in verse 1, in my former book. That's the Gospel of Luke, and now this is volume 2. Now, scrolls could only be 36 feet long that you would write upon. When John Piper was here some years ago and to preach, uh, he and his wife and their adopted daughter came to our house uh, for, uh, for breakfast, and I was showing him this study that I built years ago above a carport, and... I mentioned to him, I said, how long are your sermons when you type your manuscripts? He said, he got a gleam in his eye, and he said, 16,000 kilobytes. <laughs> well, if we had asked Luke that question, he would have said 36 feet. <laughs> they would roll out to 36 feet. And so he tells us that, he, that these were inspired by God. Now, the titles, the titles we added later. Uh, He did not name his second book Acts or Acts of the Apostles. So those aren't inspired. The chapters and verse numbers, those were not there originally. Those are not inspired along with the maps, okay, in the back. I mean, those we don't look at as inerrant word of God. And sometimes the titles are a little lacking, and I guess none is more lacking than this one. Now, uh, I remember reading where several authors, some time ago I read this, where they had said, well, here are some possible better titles for the book of Acts. Here's one. I like this one. I think this is the most accurate. The Acts of the Resurrected Christ, executed through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the agency of the church. I don't think that'll make it on a bestseller list. Now that's, they just went with Acts. And so what we find here is the ascension happening in the first few verses And the angels tell them, you've got work to do. Why are you standing here looking at this? Christ is still at work. You realize that no other religion can make that claim. If you come from a Mormon background or you have friends or family that are Mormons, 
You'll never hear one say, well, Joseph Smith is alive today and he's still at work. You will never hear a Muslim say that Muhammad is still alive and at work. We as Christians say Jesus is alive. It sounds like science fiction to a lot of people. He's alive and he's at work. That's what we find here in Acts chapter 1. That's what the angel is saying to them. Well, let's look at it. I want us to look primarily at the training that Jesus gives them to prepare them for the mission. Because successful mission, if we're to be successful ambassadors for Christ, it really depends on our education and training and preparation. And we find that in the first five verses that we read earlier. Now, these guys have been with Jesus at least two years as his designated disciples. Probably closer to three years, they had been around his ministry and heard his public preaching and so forth. But when you read through the Gospels, you get the clear impression they were clueless. Even at the end, they are still confused. It's almost as though they have veils or cataracts over their eyes. Up to the very end, it's that way. Now, Jesus has died and he's resurrected. And he has, for 40 days, he has shown himself and he has prepared these men. And he has prepared them. And it says in verse 3, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. We often think, well, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he was resurrected. And then a few days later, he, he ascended to heaven. Forty days. What's that? Six, six weeks? Almost six weeks. Appeared to hundreds of people. What was he doing with those people and with these disciples during that 40 days? He's instructing them. He was teaching them. Bible doctrine, Bible survey. If you go to Luke 24, there's one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And it gets very specific that he instructs them about what was to happen from the law of Moses and, and the prophets and so forth. So what do we think he was going over on those 40 days? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so forth. He's explaining the scriptures to them. Why? Because if they, if we are to be a witness, we cannot do it if we have no idea what we're talking about. And these are the founders of the church. They're the founders of this church. Ultimately, we trace our heritage back to one of those disciples. So for 40 days, he fills their minds with theology and Bible survey, and he explains it. And if you're going to hang upside down on a cross, if you're going to be persecuted and murdered for what you believe, you better know the God you're dying for. When you're asked by a classmate or a coworker or a relative why you believe these things that sound so far-fetched, you better know him personally. I think most, my opinion is, most Christians have difficulty witnessing I don't think it's because we're all cowards or afraid to take a stand or that we don't care about people or that we don't think this is true. I think most of us fail to witness because we don't really know God and we don't have a vibrant relationship with Christ. And if you don't know him personally and passionately, you will not talk about him. You, if you're passionate about something, whether it's a hobby, a car, a house, clothes, uh, a sports team, whatever, a new restaurant, you will talk about it. 
You will. It just comes out. Sometimes it's amazing how people can wedge things into conversations that have nothing to do with what they're thinking about. Now, I mentioned to you about a year ago that I know former President Bill Clinton. Now, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I want to tell you what happened. When I was a campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Arkansas years ago, I'm going to show you how many years ago in light of the fact that I went into the student center and I was walking up to a row of pay telephones. Some of y'all remember what those were? And in front of me was a fellow and he had on a dark suit and he was talking on the phone and somebody official looking to stand offside and I walked up and I'm standing right behind me, behind him, and he turns around as Bill Clinton. He was the governor of the state at that time. And he, his hair was not near silver to his now, and I had hair, to show you how long it was. And he, looks, he looked at me, and when he realized I recognized who he was, he quickly turned around, and, you know, I guess he thought I was going to seek an autograph. I wasn't. <laughs> and he, uh, he finished his conversation and moved on. Now, if I had gone home that afternoon, I don't remember if I did or not, and said, hey, Barbara, I met and got to know Bill Clinton today. Governor, Governor Clinton. Well, what's he like? Well, he's about 6'4", six, 6'3", six, he's taller than I was, kind of looked this way, about that. Well, no, tell me more about him. What, uh, well, that's all I know, but I know him. <laughs> I wouldn't be a very good witness. I wouldn't be a very good ambassador if the extent of my knowledge was that. And yet, is it not true that often we say, well, I, I know Christ. I'm staking my eternity on this being true. Well, why? I don't know. <laughs> I heard about him in church. I heard he raised from the dead. Or I think he did. Why do you believe that? I don't know. I just do. Okay, well, is he at work in your life? Mm, not really. But I, I know where I can read about him. I can get one of those Bibles, like right over there, and maybe read about him if I, I choose to do so. See, so you have to know somebody. You have to have a relationship with them. So the question is not whether you are an ambassador, but what kind of ambassador are you? How do you get to know him? You get to know him through his eyewitnesses through the testimony of these that wrote the scriptures. The first apostles, these disciples, apostle means one who is sent. The first ones that were sent out, I'm greatly comforted in that they were common people. Uh, they would not have been exceptional in any way. Uh, for the most part, they represented the run-of-the-mill jobs of the day, whether fishermen or tax collector. Uh, they, they had an average education for their day. They apparently were not exceptionally gifted to stand out from the crowd, at least when they became followers of Jesus. Uh, and if they could be trained to effectively represent and be ambassadors for Christ, there's hope for all of us. There's hope for all of us. And they were effective, why? Because they knew Jesus. That was it. I don't think it was because of their... Uh, smart intellects or anything, it's because they knew Jesus. Okay, let me move on. Another way to be effective as an ambassador, it depends on clarity. Clarity of mission. If you don't know what your mission is, you can't be successful. Although he died back in 1993, Bill Peterson was a great football coach, highly regarded, primarily at Florida State, but also coached the Houston Oilers. And if you ever read uh, notable sports quotations on the internet or from a book. Um, he made the term athletic scholarship an oxymoron. He was very humorous. And he was known for reshaping the English language. 
One of his most novel expressions was to have his team, all right, I want you to pair off in groups of three, and then I want you to line up in a circle. But my favorite was, and he was heard to say, I want you to line up alphabetically by height. (laughs) Now the apostles are given the final instructions, and they need clarity. Look at verse 6 again. They said, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? What does he do? They're still confused. They are still expecting a military structure, a government, something to break the backs of the Roman oppressors. They are still expecting that that's what Jesus is going to do, establish an earthly kingdom like that. What does Jesus say in verses 7 and 8? It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Lord, is it at this time you're going to set up the kingdom of Israel? And he says, despite them still being focused on that, he's saying, look, it starts here in Jerusalem. Then it expands to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts, the ends of the earth. He's saying this gospel is not just good news for Jews only. It's not a gospel that says the center of God's purpose and his activity is Israel. It says that the wall of partition between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, has now been broken down. And this is for all people. And it begins here, but it's going to expand out. And that is the mission. That is his plan. That is his goal. They're still looking for something out, and they needed clarity. And Jesus says, no, it's not here and now in this Solomon-like glory, it is the ends of the earth is to go that far. He says it's a spiritual kingdom. It's an international kingdom. His kingdom is not advanced by military might or by armies, but by the Holy Spirit. And so they would do that. They would continue out and they would multiply out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, I think it's interesting when you read this, when you think what was happening, because when Jesus spoke these words, when he spoke these words here in Acts chapter 1, after three-plus years of public ministry, his followers, the complete total number of followers was probably no more than 200 people, a, a little bit smaller than this crowd. That was the total number of followers when he gives this, uh, this mission of, to the uttermost parts of the world. We believe that during his earthly ministry, the number of people that actually heard Jesus preach or teach in any any setting was between 20,000 and 30,000. Now, you think of world population, that is not even a drop in the bucket. Today, you can go on the radio in Macon, and that many people will hear you in middle Georgia in a matter of moments. And so... They did what he said. They went out to make disciples of all nations. And 150 years later, in the year 200, Tertullian wrote in an essay called A True Christian. He's giving a defense of the Christian church, and he's explaining the spread of this over the past 150 years. And he says, we are but of yesterday. In other words, we're, we're new We're the new kids on the block, so to speak, even in Tertullian's language. Yet we have filled all places among your cities, islands, citadels, boroughs, assemblies, your very camps, your tribes of the common people, the councils, the judges, the palaces, the senate, the judiciaries. We only leave to you your pagan temples. 
He basically says, we are everywhere after 150 years. How did that happen? Because the disciples, through the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfilled what was said here in Acts verse 8, chapter 1. And often we forget why we exist. And in the business world, they call that mission drift. Mission drift. We forget what our mission is. We could do a survey this morning of everyone in here or all through our Sunday school classes or wherever and say, how can we make First Presbyterian Church better? How can we make our ministry more effective? And I don't doubt that we would get all sorts of suggestions. We need more decaf. We need the communion bread that it could be handled differently or a different type. of. We need the such in the nursery. We need the classrooms painted or the new carpet. We need build. There is no end to trying to perfect the church. Okay? That's no reason not to try, but we will never perfect the church in this life. But to ask, how can we make First Presbyterian Church better, is the wrong question. Because that's about us. The question should be, how do we go about making disciples in Macon, Bibb County, Middle Georgia, the world? That's the question. That's the mission that Christ has given Bibb County is very broken. Macon is very broken. There are many broken places. And only the gospel of Christ and a passionate relationship with him are, are going to make eternal improvements and changes. And how are they going to get that? Through you and me as his ambassadors. That, that's how. It's always been that way. Note in verse 8 also, the word he uses for you will be my witnesses was the word for martyr. Martus. A martyr is someone who bears testimony for another person or cause with that person's own death. A martyr is someone who says, I am willing to die for this and does die for that. The Holy Spirit, in other words, Acts 1-8 applies to us. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will empower you as my ambassadors even to the death. Even to the death. You know what happened to these men standing there with Jesus who heard this? Now we don't know for sure we don't have scripture that tells us what happened to all of them. And so we have to rely on the testimony of history. Best we know, this is things I've studied and learned. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in AD 44. He was the first of the 12 to die since the addition of Matthias after Judas killed himself. Andrew, who was Peter's brother, was crucified upon a diagonal or X-shaped cross. He was buried in the country of Greece. Philip took the gospel to Russia and finally to Turkey, and he himself was crucified in 54 A.D. Bartholomew, who is also known as Nathaniel, he took the gospel to Asia Minor and India, and he was skinned alive and then beheaded. Some sources locate his death at Durban on the Caspian Sea. Matthew preached the gospel in Ethiopia and in the Middle East before he was killed with a halberd in 60 A.D. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome around the year 64 A.D. Thomas was killed by a spear in Madras, India in A.D. 72. James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten to death with a club after being crucified and stoned. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, took the gospel to the Middle East. He was killed with an axe-headed spear in what's called modern-day Beirut. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in the Middle East and North Africa. He was believed to have been sawn in two in the country of Syria in A.D. 74. Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, preached the gospel in Armenia and Judea. He was stoned and beheaded in the city of Jerusalem. And John, the son of Zebedee, 
We have no biblical record of his death, but he is believed to be the only disciple to have lived and died at an old age from natural causes. It was 12 years ago, 13 years ago this summer, that the U.S. Embassy bombings took place in Kenya. It was August of 1998. Hundreds of people were killed when two trucks loaded with uh, explosives simultaneously blew up there at the United States Embassy and in other several major Eastern African cities. It was the first time many of us ever heard the name Osama bin Laden, who was behind that. It was also the first time his name was placed on the FBI's most wanted list, the 10 most wanted list. Now, in the aftermath, you can go on the Internet now and still read about that, and it was a horrific thing. It was a terrible thing. And there are many pictures. There was a photo of an American ambassador in Kenya, alive but covered with blood. And you look at a picture and you think it is costly, can be costly, to be an ambassador of the United States. Listen, it's costly to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. It is today. And maybe we won't end up like those disciples with what happened to them. But it's, it's costly because everything around us says, look, just be obsessed with yourself. Just worry about nothing but your own retirement account or your own health issues or other things that concern you, your own comfort, your own status. And so it's costly to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ because you have to care about things. You have to put self to death, not only to follow him, but you might say especially to be a witness for him. Well, last of all, mission also being successful as ambassadors depends on urgency. In the last verses, the last few verses, verses 9 to 11, the disciples see Jesus ascend up before them. Luke is saying, here's a physician, here's a man of science. It's no fable, it's not some made-up story. This is something they witnessed. He rose up into the sky. I can't explain it. I can't give a scientific explanation of what was taking place. But he rises up and he disappears into a cloud. And I can't help but think as they were watching Jesus ascend up, in the sky, I bet their jaws were open. They were as dumbfounded as we would have been had we seen that. And they're standing there when these two men, says they were angels dressed in white, said, why are you standing there gazing into heaven? Why are you, why are you still here? And I think what was point being made was that's not where Christians are to be. It's not about just gazing up into heaven. There's work to do. There are people to reach, there are churches to be planted, there's a gospel to be distributed to the world, and it has to go to the ends of the world. Now, three quick observations about the ascension, very quickly. First, the ascension of Christ is in the Bible, I believe, as an explanation as to why Jesus never appeared again. He doesn't, he doesn't come back to earth again. I mean, this it was like... Yeah, we you know people had visions of him. Stephen, at his at his death, saw Jesus seated at the right hand of the Son of, of God. Paul sees him, but as far as him coming back earthly, uh, physically to earth, that was it. That was it. Second, it's an explanation in a visible way that, in a sense, he is being promoted. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits and where every knee eventually will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And the third reason we have the ascension the record of the ascension, is it gives us a glimpse of the next great redemptive event, which will be that he'll return the same way he left. But it will be on a cloud with a trumpet, with a celestial army. I tried to think of some kind of memorable conclusion 
I racked my brain. I really did. I went through all of Chuck Swindoll's illustration book about that fit. Couldn't find anything. Some of you younger people, Chuck Swindoll used to be on the radio. I mean, he still is. For, he used a payphone at one time. Here's my conclusion. Let's not complicate this, folks. It's not a complicated mission. I, I mean, it's a huge mission, but it's not complicated. Make disciples, multiply followers of Christ in our families, in the church, in the world. And to have a vision of that all the time means to look at life through the lens of God's eyes, so to speak. We're going to close with a hymn that talks about Christ being seated at the right hand of God the Father and the victory that gives us. But I want to have a prayer, and then we're going to sing this closing hymn. Let me pray for us now. Our Father, we thank you for this commission, and those of us that follow you, that know you, we desire to be your ambassadors, and we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you might enable and empower us through a passionate relationship with you as we grow in faith to be ambassadors in the various places where you put us. We pray also for those that we've sent out that go cross-culturally, and it's even more difficult that you would raise up laborers and you would power those that are there and meet their needs. And we pray for those that may be here today and they don't really have a mission in life right now except to exist. And may you open their eyes to the truth of Christ being your son who became our substitute for the punishment our sin deserved. And that through him they can have life with you as they put their trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the words and music are on the back. You need to follow the music closely. Allison's going to sing the first verse to